Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's guest, Isan Popel. Isan, how are you, mate? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Doing, doing okay yourself? Yeah, you're going well, buddy. Now, I have to, I have to credit you because you got me started with the podcast. Because when we went to the very first lockdown, twenty twenty, I saw your content, and you were doing some awesome videos with uh, a lot of the football guys from the work that you do. And I remember contacting you going, mate, how are you doing that? Like, that's cool. I want in. So thank you. I appreciate the <laughs> little nudge, yeah, even if it wasn't intentional. Oh, good. No, keep up the good work. It looks, look, it's all looking really nice. Yeah, cheers, mate. Appreciate it. So, Isan, we connected through a mutual friend, uh, Tom Byer, because of your work in football. Now, at that time, I was looking for answers in my sports coaching and I, I stumbled across Tom on Twitter. And then he told me that he'd actually met a couple of young blokes from Australia the same way. So please share for the audience what it is that you do now and why you're so passionate about it. Yeah, so um, I suppose I'm a business owner, founder of Kano, or also known as Kano Football. Um, we're basically a grassroots football soccer organization that provides um, coaching, resourcing, and knowledge to community clubs. Um, so your local everyday soccer club, uh, we go in there and provide the club itself resources through coaching and you know coaching all the teams. And um, really what we're really trying to do is develop a culture of development and just really resource these clubs. So we also work with a lot of schools, and, you know, teachers of time point stuff to provide good football coaching there. But, you know, in a nutshell, we're passionate about what we're doing because we really want to instill a culture of development, skill development and love. So, um, yeah, and there a lot of these programs run in Sydney and in Melbourne. I'm very lucky and grateful for it to be full-time. But, you know, I hope that that makes sense. We're a... Uh, you know, football provider, not an academy of, about making professional footballers, but really at that grassroots level, entry level, trying to instill development and love of the game for everybody involved. Yeah, and I'll share from my own experience and the work that you've done at my local club and just watching the growth in the development of the children playing there and the skill increase in the – you've probably been there about, what, seven – Seven years at Normanhurst? Yeah, that's right. Seven years, yeah, at Normanhurst. Yeah, yeah. So so having been involved in the grading and watching the the difference in skill, and I can remember when I did it a couple of years ago and just watching from the kids who have been doing your – oh, not academy, your um, – your, the, the Kano way through the coaching for four or five years, the skill compared to the ones who had only picked it up like later 
down the track when you guys had come in was like the gulf was massive. And so yeah. it's like what when I think about it, it's like you're raising the the level of of that grassroots level yeah. and giving them the the competence and confidence to go on to what whatever their football career may look like, whether it's continuing to play with their mates or at some other high level. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. Because if you look at club level soccer, community football, or most sport, um, it's the look first and foremost. It's the most under resourced part of sport. And um, when you look in the latter years, you start to see a drop off with a lot of kids not playing sport. Um, and maybe you know, I can share about why it's probably not good to you know not be involved in sport. But um, we're really there to use skill development as a fuel as fuel to keep these kids going for many years ahead so it's a philosophy and something that we believe in it takes you know time as you said with your club seven years first couple of years it was probably not as fully embraced but as we got on and people understood they've embraced it and then you can start to see the results with kids that are more skillful happy and continuing to play and, and the club growing in numbers too Mm, that that you touched on something really important there. That's that's like making sure that the, that the kids keep coming back to play. Because to me, in community football, I'm sure many people out there have, have seen it, witnessed it, heard it. Parents getting way too involved and and way too intense. When really our our main goal should be make sure they come back next year, right? Oh, I exactly, think- exactly. Yeah, yeah I'll just like- say exactly. It's, it's as you said, it's community sport. You know, there's people. Um, it's about you know, especially football in Australia, you know, when I think, you know, a lot of migrant communities, the English, Scottish, the Italian, Greeks, when they all brought football here, football was a mechanism to, you know, as a community to go to weddings and, you know, meet people and work together and stuff. And, you know, we need to have that sense of community, especially because the whole point is to keep kids and parents coming back, engaging with each other and, yeah, using as a um, as a little hub for life. Yeah, and I think that's probably if I if I think about it now, the, the one of the most beneficial things has been the parent education because what Kanu does is it, it gives children that competence and, and confidence to then want to keep playing. And then as you said, sometimes it can take a few years just to filter through before mm-hmm. people actually see. But when they do and they see their child do something on the field that they couldn't comprehend. For me it was like watching my my young fella do things that I'd never been taught that I'd never known how to do and just doing them instinctively on the field. Like to me as a parent, that brings me more joy than anything to watch that, that development. So to me, what you're doing is just beneficial on so much, so many levels because it's more than just the football, right? It's the confidence that it gives them as people going forward. That's massive. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head, especially when you talked about, look, it's not short term, in the short term, you may or may not see it, but, you know, if you persist and give it time and trust the philosophy, ultimately what you're seeing is happiness as a parent. You know, kids want to, parents want to see their kids happy. I've got two daughters and, you know, I'd rather see them happy than crying all day. And um, and if they can do it on the football field and, and we play a role in that, um, that's our job done. So, um, no, you're, you're spot on. That's, it's, that's, that's what it's about. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent, and and the philosophy works all the way up to um, adults too, right? So I've, I've been yeah. coaching a women's team for the last couple of years, and just taking them through really similar stuff to what you guys teach, and giving them that competence and and that and that confidence on the ball, and then even them just suddenly realizing like we actually play really good football now mm-hmm. because they've learned to use that the ball at their feet, and um, like like I've heard you talk about before, it's that relationship with the ball, right? 
It's that's right. Yeah, that's that's right. It's um, you know, if you look at the science part of it, as Tom says, you know, eighty percent of the part of the body that's responsible for skill acquisition, where the brain, the feet talk together. Um, it's formed by the age of 11. So, you know, that's why we start at 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, um, because the older you get, it can become more difficult. Um, so, yeah, it's all about skills. And, you know, just like yourself, you know, you're working with a lot of people to help them develop skills to cope with the environment, and that's what we want to do. And the, the earlier we can get them, the easier the job becomes, yeah. It doesn't mean it, it's it's not impossible later on, but, Yeah. Absolutely. Makes it more challenging. Now, speaking of challenges, we were talking about uh, the challenges over the last few years. So for for a business that relies on being outdoors and having close proximity people, how have you got through the last two years? And actually, even just in Sydney, the, the last four months with relentless rain? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. That's why, you know, I jumped on this opportunity when you said come on it because it would be interesting to of a, you know, on, upon reflection, look at this and hear myself because, you know, as a small business owner, when I first started, you know, working at home, you know, that that's a challenging thing on its own because you're not usually interacting with a lot of people. And then when you're out there, all of a sudden it's a quick transition where you see a lot of people. So it really is your, um, you know, your go-to, your fix in a sense when you see people and you're interacting. And then to go back to, and then go to a and then to be into a situation where you're not seeing anyone, it, it's very, very challenging. And because um, that's what we thrive on. So the last two and a half years, yeah, I um, still still trying to understand and learn more about it. I think it's at the moment we're just adapting. Um, I think it'll take a bit more time to reflect and go, you know what, that's how to do it. But, you know, the rain's played a big role. But I think the main thing was just keep walking, you won't keep easy, just don't give up. I know it's very cliche, but, um, you know, I picked up a bike, for instance, or a road bike on this you know, I'm one of those lycra sort of people who are going around. That that helped a lot because I suppose it's a metaphor and analogy of you do some big rides and you could give up, but you've got to go. But more importantly, you've got to be prepared. You've got to fuel yourself. And I think that's what we've tried to do is, yes, the environment is out there in a certain way, but we need to be prepared. And, you know, that's pre, before. And then while it's all happening, um, you have to adapt. You have to be strong. You have to keep going and not give up. Yeah, hundred percent, and that ability to keep pushing forward through those tough times is so important, right? And it's, it makes me think of like you talk about riding, about running. I don't love running, but mm. I know it's that challenge of of when you're wanting to quit and when your lungs are bursting, and it and it and it really helps teach some discipline and drive and and the mental strength to be able to move forward. And and so I love how you shared that's how you got through it because I imagine that would have given you a lot of peace of mind when when you had so much other things that you could have been worrying about in that two-year period yeah oh that peace of mind you're exactly right because you know it's seven days a week for us it doesn't stop and but but now i'm understanding more of that peace of mind you know uh we don't have to stay up all night and stressing about things that ultimately will be okay you know just so no it's you're 100 that peace of mind to be an antidote especially in this process yeah I'm curious, and and this, um, as you were saying that, just talking about everything will be all right. It made me think of that the the importance of faith, right? And and how much we have to just like we can we can have faith that things will work out, or we can just believe that it'll all go to shit. But both of them are beliefs, right? So so how when you come from that perspective of faith, is that something that comes from a religious perspective? Is it come from a 
what you've learned through business? Is it more about family, like a cultural thing? Like how do you find that position of faith? Yeah, so, you know, my background, um, I was born in Afghanistan, um, but, you know, that's the cultural element and the faith element. I am Muslim, so I, do, I practice as a Muslim. And, and, you know, recently, in the last two years, I've also been looking at other things, you know, human behavioural theorists, um, a guy called, you know, I think Dr. John D. Martini, some people might know. Um, you know, just looking into, I think there's a big increase in human behaviour and spirituality and all that. And I think, you know, delving a bit more into that has helped. Um, you know, faith's played a very integral part of what I do and and it interlinks with everything, business, sport, life. Um, but, you know, this isn't the sort of image that a lot of people see where, you know, it's sort of go to the mosque or church and just pray. It's more actually looking into the behavioural side of things, which is something that people don't probably see as often. You know, what do we do? What am I reading? What am I studying about? Um, my faith that allows me to behave in a certain way and behaving in, in regards to not so much, you know, the things that a lot of people may see rudimentary as the sinning and all that. No, no, not so much that, but how does faith allow you to overcome adversity or how does it allow you to overcome business challenges and, and those things. So they're the things that I've been really interested in. And yeah, it's led me into an avenue where you're more leaning towards Leaning about philosophers who talk about um, you know fear or if it's or if it's grief and these things and it's really really fascinating. I think reading different perspectives and a lot of things in the theology faith space has definitely enlightened my understanding because our problems are also not very different to a lot of problems that people have had in the past. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, well said. I love that. So you're incorporating your faith, your Muslim faith, with things that you've learned from all sorts of people through history. And then building on that faith and that ability to, to see that things will work out. I really love that. Yeah, definitely, mate. It's um, There's a lot of things that I've learned um, that traditionally, because a lot of people from my faith are from non-English speaking backgrounds and I don't connect as much with that. Um, but when I looked into it, there's a whole different world, you know, um, um, in, in terms of, you know, I always thought the faith was mainly people from Arabic origin, but it's not. <laughs> it's you know, it's yeah, the wide world out there. And I think the more you open your eyes and understand, um, yeah, you get a good perspective on things. Yeah, well said. Now you mentioned born in Afghanistan, and just before we jumped on, you were talking to me about some of those um, the reasons why you left. So I'd love for you to share that, so for people get an understanding. Like you, you basically left a war torn country when you were two, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, um, so I'm 34, so born in 1988. Um, you know, there's a good movie if anyone's watched it. It's called Charlie Wilson's War with um, Tom Hanks. And that gives a good depiction of um, what happened. And so in 1978, 1970, the, the Russians and the Afghans, um, it was a big Cold War, obviously, with the US and everyone involved. And we were part of that process of the people that left. So, you know, my parents were very happy in Afghanistan, a thriving country and an economy. Um, not, not what you would see now, very different, um, almost like a modern Australia back then. But, you know, at the age of two, um, my parents decided to go. Um, I was two. My brother was probably just very young, newborn. Um, but my childcare centre was absolutely smashed, bombed and um, during the war. And 
I, I believe, um, I, I don't remember it, but I was one of the remaining survivors. I probably was even a bit younger than two, but my parents said, this is time, we have to go. So, you know, a lot of my family now they still live in the UK and France. They went over there and um, and then we came, we went to Russia and then came to Australia. But, um, yeah, it's a pretty strong image in my mind, even though I don't remember it, but definitely something I carry on and, yeah, try to use as something to lean back when, you know, you're going through some hard times and you probably feel a bit ungrateful, but, yeah. Yeah, mind, mind-boggling. I, I, for most of us growing up in the Western world, we can't even comprehend what that must have been like for your parents. I mean, like you said, you don't really have a memory of it. So, so were you actually in the in the childcare centre? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I was in the childcare centre. So my my parents they haven't talked about it much and gone through it, but they've said basically you were one of the one or two people that were alive. So, and they just packed the bags, everything, you know. And this is like we're talking those money in the bank accounts and all that. I just said, no, nah, we just got to get out, you know, just pick up your clothes and go, right? It's it's just got to be done. So just like the sort of scenes we saw in the news, I think it was a year ago where people rushed into the airport. Yeah. Yeah, wow. So so they have to go. <clears throat> I know this is about you, but I'm, I'm fascinated yeah. by this. So, so they're like um, going overland. Like how, how do they then get from where they were living? You said they went to Russia next. How do they even get where I they were going? I don't know exactly you know, what the process was, um, but, you know, from Afghanistan to Russia, um, you know, it was the Soviet Union back then. So neighbouring countries like Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, um, I don't know exactly, but there was obviously the aeroplanes and a lot of people just driving and all that um, across. But I don't know exactly how we got there, but um, I know my... My uncle, um, he was a journalist, so they did use him as an advocate, you know, to get a lot of the family across. And we're talking my aunties. I've got heaps of aunties in, as I said, England, France. Um, but my uncle, who was quite successful, he was someone that we relied on to get across um, to help us, yeah, to get visas and all those kind of things, yeah. Mm. It is fascinating to hear you say that it was uh, quite modern, back then and and how it's been allowed to go to like where it is now and to me that's like so many things that you look at around the world is just such a discredit to to humanity that that we've allowed these things to unfold it it, I, i can't even comprehend it i mean it must be even though you don't have a memory of it it must be part of you that really feels strongly about those sort of things given what you and your family have come from yeah look as now I've got into my 30s, I, um, it's something that it's very difficult to watch without getting emotional, like even now talking about it. It's um, get a lump in your throat because I've got kids now and you see what kids go through there and, you know, begging on the street and this and you don't understand it. You just don't. Like, because I work with kids, so I can't sometimes watch some of the images now on television. It's just too hard. It's, it's mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, it's like, again, it's like it, it puts you in such a perfect position that you have this passion for making sure kids are getting the best that they can, right? Like if I think yeah. about the journey you've just described, safety, opportunity, um, mm-hmm. think of all of the different things that came from from your life as, as you guys have moved to a to place that was safer. Like, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've even – reflected on that but to me it seems like such a great fit in the work you're doing now yeah it's 
it's an interesting one because my work philosophy is really about it's an element where I'm frustrated with Australian football and really pushing on that. You know, we it's it's very focused on we want it to be a certain way, but when you took it the other side, when as a life, as a business owner, when you're, you know, you, you got your moments, um, you look at these things, you know, even like there's two things. There's looking at the country, the people, and then looking at my parents. Like my dad came here with an engineering degree, studied very hard, played professional football for Afghanistan, traveled around the world. Mum did engineering and to come here, my dad had to, you know, the, the degrees were revoked, different language, different culture, right? Um, USSR, I think they wouldn't accept it here. So, he alternately had to, when he got here at 35, same age as me, basically. And he had to not go, he had to go drive a cab. And that's his, his job. And it's not this cab driving, but to sit in the car 12 hours a day, I'd, I'd like someone to go try it. It's not hard, you know, and it's hard. And so that, that really hit me now. Like, you know, he had to do something he didn't want. And we're talking, you know, still driving till today for 30 years. And mum had to go into all kinds of things um, and to do to just sort of make it work for us. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's sad. And when you see the kids now, like it's worse, it's, it's, you know, they're still, yeah, it, it's, it's really hard to see. So I, I use it as fuel for gratitude and um, yeah, for strength to really push on and help us as a business that helps also kids too. Yeah. Awesome. And you touched on something there that, that I think most people in Australia know and recognise is that the, the migrant families in, in Australia have been through these different challenges and they've given so much to this country because for exactly that, like you said, they, they come here because it's like their life depends on it as exactly it was for, for your family and the lengths that they will go to to make sure that they give their children an opportunity. Like what a blessing to you and mm. for your whole family to, to have been given that it's like a second chance almost, right? Yeah, correct. It's you hit the nail on the head. It's it's a blessing, and um, you know, sometimes I still argue with mum, and I'm probably with mum more than dad. My mum can be quite vocal with, with personality clash, but I take that away. But you know, we love them deeply, and we're we're very close as a family. But it's uh, yeah, it's a blessing. They've they've made a lot of sacrifices, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Now you mentioned you went from Afghanistan to Russia, and then you came to Australia in kindergarten, and you'd only. Sp- Spoke Russian. So, so what was that experience like? Do you have much of a memory of like going into school without being able to speak the language? Yeah, I um, I went to a school for I think a week till we could find somewhere. It's funny because um, I think it was Tilopia Public School in Carlingford and there, and went went to there for a week. And I then we went to then we moved to Parramatta, which we lived in for five years. But I remember just trying to when we're learning language. It was really just, yeah, you couldn't communicate to anyone. You were very passive, but the way you learned was just like at lunchtime. I remember, I remember once I was saying, trying to say things, and but it was saying it by the letter. Like I go like ah 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 or f f f f like that, and you try to get and things would come out the wrong, and kids would laugh at it. But it was it was okay. I think we learned pretty quickly over time, but um, it was a very passive thing. You, communication was hard, obviously. <laughs> so. Yeah. Again, I think, yeah, for, for those of us who grew up here, uh, spoiled in so many ways, right, because we, we don't have to think about those sorts of things. 
but you guys learning a new language, like, did that bring you closer together, particularly with your brother? Like, did you did you then sort of take some comfort in the fact that you could at least converse with them? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's um, now, like, I don't speak, like, Farsi or Persian much at home, and I don't actually speak it at home, but... I, um, growing up in Parramatta, my parents had to work a lot. We, I don't have any cousins here, like in Australia, no first cousins or uncles and stuff. So we grew up a lot of the time, our school holidays were spent inside the house together, watching TV and ABC Kids and all that. And that was a way that really fast-tracked, you know, your accent and uh, the sound of it and the words. So those little things like that, school holidays on TV, like I didn't play organized sport till I was 10, 11. Um, so I didn't play for a team because my parents were busy, but I think what really accelerated was because my school was 90% migrants. They weren't kids from non um, from um, non English speaking background. Most of them from non English speaking background. So I wasn't. There's was a lot of kids in the same boat as me. But I think really, I remember TV played a massive role in it. Um, those little things like that because we weren't very widely integrated with um, English speaking backgrounds, even in that area. Yeah. Right. So that's your first taste of like organized football at that age. Did you sort of pick it up pretty quickly? Like your dad's played at a national level, international level. So there must have been party that had the, the DNA that just picked it up yeah. pretty pretty fluently. You know, it's funny. You're going to have a laugh on this. <laughs> when I was under 10, so we lived in North Parramatta and there's a famous ground called uh, Richie Beno Oval, the, you know, the, the cricketer um, commentator. So... The school that I was in, it's the closest primary school to Parramatta Stadium. So I just remember them coming to our school and all that. Soccer, you didn't have a club there. The NSL was there, but there's no real clubs that had, you know, hit that area. There was Parramatta Power, but they came in year, year six, year five. But they came in and I fell in love with rugby league. And then the first year under 10s, I actually went and played two or three games for the local junior club. So rugby league was my first sport, but then... Once my dad came and saw, my mum was passive about she didn't really know what was going on. But when my dad came and saw it, she didn't like the culture. <laughs> it was a bit aggressive and kids getting hurt and all that. And he took me out, and that's why I went and played um, soccer. Um, even though my dad played, I played a lot of street football at the park and all that with all the people we'd go to friends and families. But rugby league was actually the first one under ten, and then eleven soccer. Brilliant. Yeah. So could have been playing uh, halfback for the Eels, mate. Yes, they were last night. I could have won us the game. So, <laughs> oh, very good. So, like, talk us through that football journey because I know you said you you, you played it at quite a high level for for a number of years. So, how did you go? You're playing club football. How quickly are you playing at a representative level? And then how did that sort of unfold? Yeah, first year played Division Five football because it was the only division, and then um, I think it was under Levens Division Five, and then the next year went to another club at North Rocks um, and played Division One football, and then the association sent a letter and said, "Hey, do you want to come and play for the association team?" We actually had Aaron Moy in our team, so that was pretty cool. Um, yeah. He was in there, and then from there, I was just. I started to just do things myself. There's a little paper, Australian British Weekly soccer paper. You saw I had soccer trials. I used to cut that, cut them out and then just find these trials and get my mum to drive me around. My dad would never take me. He was just busy and didn't really want me to play soccer because he was quite scarred and griefed about, you know, putting all that time and getting nothing out of it. So he didn't actually want me to play. It was my mum that pushed me a lot. Um, so I... Um, 
I would always go for my mum to the trials, Marconi and all that. But it was from the association that, you know, I got that appetite and it was just trialing at places. So I ended up at Parramatta, Parramatta Eagles. That was the old Pepsi Super League and then played at Northern Spirit. Um, I was in Globes, was Northern Spirit there. That was really good. And then ended up back at Parramatta and played at MPL under 21, uh, MPL first grade at Sutherland Sharks and finished at 21, yeah. Yeah, so you're playing first grade at that age and then you said – and then you just stopped. And when we were talking before we came on, you said like it was like I was running away from it and you didn't play football for nine years. So what what motivated you to just say, oh, I'm, I'm done with this? Like what was playing out in your head at that time? I, I knew I was good enough, but I wasn't getting the game time and it really frustrated me. Like imagine – You've got 30 weeks in a year and 20 of those 30 weeks you're sitting on the bench for 87 minutes and playing three minutes. But the team was very strong. Like it was the top two, top three team in the whole NPL. Like a lot of those guys have gone and played a pretty decent level, like A-League and all that. But that really shattered me and I just said, man, I'm over this. I trained so hard. I was training myself twice a day and all that, putting a lot of – who said I'm over it? And – just, I said, I'm not going to go play club soccer. What's that? You know, it's, what do I get out of that? So I just stopped. So I, I didn't feel like I was going to get anything out of playing MPL2 or club soccer. So I just said, I won't play. Yeah, right. And as you look at that time back now, did you miss it? Was it, were you angry? Like, what, like how did that sort of play out when you had made that decision? During that time, I probably stopped and, you know, you do what most 21-year-olds do and get fascinated with partying and going out to the city and stuff. But that quickly died out. And that I think I was a lot more mature probably than my friends due to football and things like that. And it died out for me within six months. So then luckily football, Sidney Ricardo came in and that was really good. That kept me busy. Um, there was no coincidence here that the business came and I started that. But when I look at it now... It's, I don't regret it, but I think it was, I should have been a little bit more resilient at that time because sometimes it can be frustrating playing the level. I'm playing local league with guys that are very younger than me and all that, but I know I can play a lot higher and push myself and enjoy myself. But um, what I look back at is I probably could have enjoyed it more even playing at that level and just been a bit more resilient mentally. Yeah. Mm. Is there a party that, that wishes your dad was more involved and was there guiding you along? Yeah, he was definitely there from a technical point of view, 100%. He was definitely there from a technical point of view. Best coach I've ever had, you know, really good encourager. Never put pressure on me or anything like that. Uh, I didn't, but I think I wish I had a bit more like a mental coach, if that makes mm, sense. Yeah. Because yeah. um, he also finished playing professionally by what? at a very young age because of the war and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's not like he completed it. So I haven't, I haven't even talked to him about it, actually. I probably should ask. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like if I think about my own journey and, and like sport was a big thing for me, like my parents had five kids. They did well to get us around everywhere to everything. But I'm, I'm kind of torn now as a parent because I'm like, I wish I'd had someone like pushing me along more, but also like there's a there's a 
point where you 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 need to step on your own two feet right and have that same resilience to me it's like a missed opportunity in in football perhaps as a player but then it moves you into this space of coaching so how long did it take before you what did you go and like coach as a as a club coach or something before you went into like business how did you then transition from okay well i'm not playing anymore I want to still be involved somehow. Yeah, well, when I finished year 12, I honestly had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, because all, all I wanted was football, but my parents always said, you got to do something. So I did a sports business degree in that, at ACPE and there was a job advertisement for a coaching thing. I said, oh, you know what, I'll just go do it. And that's where we're at, Matt, um, former founder uh, with me, business owner. So me and Matt met there and got into coaching. I just loved it. Um, it was just, it's so natural that I can't even explain it. Very, very natural for me. And I got into it and then coaching all kinds of sports. And then Matt sort of said, let's go, you know, approach Matt Kohler, which he knew Steve Lumley there, who's a kind of life member there. And he gave us an opportunity. He said, hey, come and coach some of the kids. And then I think two years later, started to brainstorm this idea about let's get a wholesome approach. But it started very young coaching at 18, 19. I know kids are starting younger and younger, but 18 was quite young for a coach back then, yeah. Mm. Very similar path. Like I, I started coaching, oh, maybe I've been 15 or something, one of the younger teams, but oh. the same sort of thing. Like it just felt sort of natural, understood, like I, yeah. don't know, I don't know what part of it is, whether it's just the how things progress or maybe it's yeah. like not necessarily coaching myself. Yeah. Um, that's why it's always, I always like to have someone sort of external, but definitely be able to watch movements and different things and be able to then go, oh, maybe you should, could try this sort of thing. And, and as you talked about before, it's hard to describe, but the fuel and the and the energy it gives you is amazing, right? So how much does that play a part? Like you love what you do. Like how much does that help you to, to get up and do what you do every day? Oh, I love it. Like when you're coaching, nothing, it's, there's nothing around you. It's just you, you don't care who's around you or not. It just, you could be on an empty stomach, but you just go and it's such a good feeling. And the, the most important is the feeling that it gives to people. Um, that's awesome because that makes you want to get up and do things and do that. So, yeah, it's it's a really good feeling coaching and making f- people feel good about it, yeah. So share some of the things you've heard from from parents or kids that have, like, like, that have given you that feedback that – yeah, it gives you the same buzz you get from actually seeing it unfold, right? Yeah, like I've seen kids who, you know, there's a kid in particular that I've been working for, for over five years. He's got like ADHD and he, um, he finds it very difficult. He's a very, very nice kid, but he finds it very difficult to concentrate, behavioural and all that kind of stuff. And his parents find it very challenging. But we've used football as a mechanism for him to A, learn, but also to make routines in his life and also to combat this crap thing, which is really hard for kids. It's quite common and he finds it really challenging, the poor kid, but, you know, football starting to get on top of it. And I love that because from a, you know, condition kind of thing, you know, his parents were either not putting him on the tablets or not, but football's a, you know, the medicine for him. And I think I've played a big role in that because, sitting back talking to him, sometimes staying back an hour and all that, that's really helped him to become a really good footballer but also, importantly, a good person. So that's one. And then, yeah, and there's like clubs like yours that, you know, 
from a coaching point of view that were struggling for numbers here and then they're just they're massive clubs i look at that and i go wow like that's that's a piece of work that's really good stuff yeah yeah i mean i can feel the joy coming down the line on that one um you're literally changing his life man like as you said the football has become his medicine that is so cool i love that yeah well you know and he's the kind of kid though i will know now till a lot later on um you know another example is some guys that i play all age football with right now um we coached them at eight nine and i've seen them every term since they were the age of eight so for 10 years i've seen them every term and they're like family right but we've seen them grow as players then they came on as coaches um and now playing in one could potentially even come work full-time with us so that's that's very impactful to find a complete stranger and you know to develop a relationship like that it's um yeah so good and watching their progression and giving them purpose beyond because because i mean i'm i was the same as you i'm like i don't know what i want to do when i grow up in fact i probably felt that till i was like late 30s and to give that that young fella an opportunity and now and so you're playing with a lot of these guys and almost like a mentor role while you play how good yeah exactly and you can see the kind of footballer that our program ultimately develops right the philosophy what the end product is and physically playing with them you can see wow they're they're pretty good yeah Yeah. that's awesome so good um so you, you also mentioned there that the impact for the club because we talked about early on about like how important it is to get the children coming back I was only talking to the president, Norman Hurst, just the other week, and he was talking about how the numbers are just massive. Um, yeah. Increase in female football, which, again, Kano's played a big part of that at Norman Hurst for sure. And that's having the right culture, the right philosophy in any environment, yeah. specifically through football, it just makes a difference because people want to be a part of that, right? So how important is it when you go into clubs is actually taking that cultural aspect of, of the impact that it's going to make, the, the selling that vision to them about the, the, the long-term benefits of working with Kana? It's massive. So we won't go out and work with every club. Um, first and foremost, we really need to be on path or understand you know, what our values are. You know, our value, our highest values are our philosophy. You know, if people are going to, understand that and it's something that they experience if they've got challenges and it works with our philosophy our values it's it's a perfect kind of thing so mark marriott he understands it and that's why yes there's sometimes things go wrong from our own or their own or whatever and and we make but we make it work because we have a common goal so the philosophy is massive you know because football like anything i'm sure there are a lot of people topics that you talk about with people everything's very subjective and opinionated but we're really trying to go through as much as we can to be objective and go, well, this is a, it's, it's not rocket science, but it's a lot of hard work. Are you willing to put in? So, um, because it does work, but some people will look for shortcuts. So it's very important to sell the vision in the right way for people to, um, be in it for the long term. I love that. So if you look at where you're at now with Carno and all that you've been through, what's the vision now for the business? Like, are you looking to go like right around the country, international? So, what's the plan? Yeah, I think we hit it. We hit a bit of a reset button I think two years ago, pre-COVID, and part of that was also um, you know a business partner moving on. So, there's, you know, there's a buyout process and all those kind of things. 
um, and a, a rebranding. So we've had a lot happen in the last two years. A, we've tried to make sure we can be as stable as we can so pe- the, the users, the people, the clubs see the same level of service and um, quality of coaching. So that, that's been good. So I think it's, I think we've probably got another year to get through it. Um, it there's a big storm. We're just, yeah, once we get out of that, I think um, it'll be awesome. Like, you know, there's a lot of plans to go um, to a lot of communities and outsource our knowledge and scale it to, yeah, definitely nas- nationwide. That's the goal. Um, so, because I think everyone in Australia will benefit. Like we're in Sydney and Melbourne and being in Melbourne has really given us a tick in the box that, the soccer clubs in Melbourne are no different to the clubs in Sydney. They've got the same problems. So it's just how do we scale it and get it across there. But we just got to weather this storm a bit. We've had some bad weather and the season's still unpredictable once we get through this. Um, but we've, we've got a lot of clubs still approaching us, but we're just trying to take it easy a little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't want to grow too much and not be able to cope with it, right? Yeah, especially after all that's happened in the last two years, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and it's a, a literal storm. Like it's it's still. I mean, it's great that we've had a bit of sunshine and we've actually been playing the last few weeks. But yeah. mind-boggling how much rain we've had in the last four months here in Sydney. So I'm I'm glad to hear you're back on track. Yeah. So I was just as I, as you were talking, then I was just thinking about like again another example of of a someone who's come from a migrant background, like making success out of something, having that hard work. Do you remember witnessing or did you experience it yourself like many sort of the negative aspects of being not what uh, a lot – I mean, I know you said you were in a in a, an area that was a lot of non-English um, background, non-English speaking background, but have you witnessed any sort of like challenges with your race or back, cultural background being here in Australia over the years? And, and if so, like how has that impacted you or, or helped drive you as well? Yeah, look, I think it's an interesting one because high school I went – so prim, primary school is non-English speaking background, So, but high school I went to Crestwood High in Borkham Hills. So that's where I probably started to see a bit more sensitivities about myself, if it was bullying, this and that, and trying to fit in. That's where I really saw it from year seven, year eight onwards. And, uh, yeah, that was a challenge because people from certain backgrounds would still hang around and, and all that. But – you know, I think meeting Matt was an awesome thing at university because I was like, oh, he's 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 an Aussie kid, <laughs> right? And we both love football and Matt really didn't care where, you know, what thing and not saying others did or not, but I think it was more my perceptions around it because when I went to Crestwood, there wasn't many football lovers and I always thought I probably had a, the wrong perception of thinking, oh, well, they don't like football. They don't like me because I'm a certain thing, but it was – we just didn't have common values. So mm. it's just my, my perceptions around it um, because I had a lot of change. You're going from an area like North Parramatta to Bork, Crestwood, Bork Mill. It's, it's two different worlds. Yeah. And then, but I didn't meet the right person that had the same, like even my group of friends, they weren't football people. They were, you know, people of the same background and country probably from where I was at primary school. But there wasn't football people as much um, as as a handful, but no one I really connected with. And we've managed to start to really connect, start to hang around. And it, yeah, it was different. And I started to see race and all those things differently. But growing up, I know a lot of kids who I went to primary school or this and that, a lot of them, not a lot of them, some have got into trouble and all those little things. And yeah, the media 
definitely, I think, portrays it negatively and overemphasizes a lot of stuff. But a big reason why my parents moved out of Parramatta was they wanted to move. It's a nicer area around there and, you know, less busy and they wanted to us to integrate a bit more wider into the community. Um, but my perceptions, definitely the bullying aspect and that's us and them was very present in, in high school. But I probably more educated when I got into uni and met Matt and, and people like that, yeah, but common values. Yeah, awesome. Um, does Matt know that, like how impactful that was for your life? <laughs> no, I'm not, I don't usually share stuff like that, but <laughs> we, we still talk and we're really good friends, but he's he's a legend and, you know, like we're still very close and, um, yeah, he's a friend for life. So um, it, it helped me heaps, helped me heaps, yeah. Yeah, so cool. So what struck me is when you were talking then is um, how important, because you mentioned this before when you were talking about coaching, how important having that, that the values and the culture in place. It's been a little bit of a theme that's sort of run through the chat. So, so what are the values of Carno and how do they intertwine with your own personal values? Yeah, look, the, the key value is, um, you know, for us, you know, like for me as, you know, as people, my, my key value is the family, you know, faith and, um, and yeah, they're, they're the key things for me and, and health. So, you know, for us with Carno, the key values that we have is, I suppose, if you take the health or the skill development component point of view, parents, which is family and, and, and a lot of faith, they're the key values and they work really well because we're not just teaching kids skills. We're teaching them to be good at something so they're healthy for many years ahead. Um, and then the other part of it too is we engage parents a lot because they're the gatekeeper to they're the they're the people that make their kids better ultimately. And if we can engage with them, um, that's important. And for me, if I engage with my family more and more, I feel happy. So it, it, it really works together really good. And you know, as I said. A, I read a quote, you know, people are not loyal to people, they're loyal to values. And I think the people that are the big beneficiaries, like even like yourself, you've been a massive supporter of ours is because you understand football, your values are very similar to us and, and it works. So, yeah. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's the thing that's, that strikes me too is like we, we're on the same page about so many of these different things that family element, faith, health, and, and I don't know if you've looked at it like this, but like your, your ability from that, uh, it's holistic health, right? So you give them the physical, it gives them yeah. the mental strength. Uh, they feel better about themselves. So it gives the emotional as- aspect and the spiritual part, which is the faith. It's the uh, their, their, their connection with themselves, their connection with their community. Man, it works on so many levels. So, And I love that. And also, I mean, you talked about skill development. Yeah, it is very similar, and that's why it's easy for me to, to get excited about. And I've also, like, for me, it's like personally I've seen the benefits. I've seen the benefits for me in my own coaching. I've seen the benefits for the kids that I've coached. I've seen the benefits for the club as a whole. And I've seen the benefits, that the impact that you have out in the wider community. And so, yeah, for me, it's a no, it's a no brainer. So I love how you've said that because it's, because it is, it's important that we, that we connect with other people who are on the same page and same values. So if you look at your, your journey and your parents' journey, that, that whole family unit, and you said they wanted to come out and integrate you, like more into the wider community that's awesome again that they saw the benefit of that did you tend to gravitate towards then other families did they tend to gravitate towards other families who shared those same values yeah they did actually you're right they did because they actually then it's so funny um they met 
there was actually other families of Afghan backgrounds that they didn't know about, but they actually were in similar like there was a there's a community that had been living on the northern beaches for thirty years. They didn't even know. A very small community. There's a small community that lived in Cherry Brook, and they started to gravitate with some of these families that had left, you know, those kind of areas to be non in more English speaking backgrounds, but they were still a minority. So, you know, when they started to meet those kind of things, oh, we share similar values and ideas, you know, for our kids. And um yeah, so they did, yeah. That's it's really funny you say that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool. And again, to me, it just highlights the importance from a personal perspective and a business perspective, like having that clarity on what your values are and and why they are so important. And also, I think if your journey's shown anything, is it sticking true to your values? Because the moment you start going outside of them and trying to be driven by other things, maybe by money or you you mentioned fitting in or whatever it is, that's when you get off track, right? So it's bringing that. that. Fitting in, yeah. Even even us as a philosophy, we kind of sometimes some clubs will have certain things they ask you on. And, you know, a lot of times we get aged, do you want to coach the 15s or the 16s, the 17s? And sometimes it, 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 sometimes it can be a trap for us in a sense. That's not what we do, but we want to f- make sure we fit in for them. But ultimately it never works out anyway because it's not the age group we work with. Yeah. So keeping focus, that's you're 100% right. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's interesting. And I think it's, it's true for, for life and for business, saying no to the things that you should say no to because of the space that will allow for more of what you do want. And 100. Me, 100. Yeah. 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 So if we turn like the attention a little bit more to that, that personal side then, so what, what have you looked at away from business, the incredible opportunities that you've had in your life? You mentioned already then, you know, you've been to uni and you met some awesome people there that, that have literally changed your life. We'll have to snip that bit out and send it to Matt because I think that's yeah. gold. It's good for people to hear those things too, the impact we have. So what about for you personally in terms of like your your life opportunities from from coming to this country from the most challenging circumstances and then to, to have the life that you have now? Yeah, it's it's the best place. Like it's the as a person I've done yeah, as a person, I can do basically what I want. And um, I think I've also had a way where coming to Australia things also allowed me, my parents never pushed me into faith or anything like that. Um, you know, nothing like that. It's I've learned to step on, to work on my two feet. Yes, kids over there and all that could too, but there's just so many things that I've been able to do here, you know, work, make money, travel overseas, um, choose what call just it's the small things go bike riding you know do all these kind of things so they're simple but they can seem big things in a way too right um, especially coming from Afghanistan when I when I put the table and I see what they can't do and I can do here you can do anything here you know I could mm-hmm. so in a way it's very limitless um, what I can do here um, in Australia and um, yeah it's hard for, as, as a person I think still evaluating a lot of it but um it's just endless opportunities endless yeah mm. so there's certain security that it gave your family and now it's like what you're describing there it's like there's a there's a freedom that that in your life that is yeah what a blessing and then and exactly and it's funny you say that now i can probably articulate it because you use that word but that freedom also needs a discipline now right because yes. that's 
22 that I found now that I've got so much freedom that I also need to be disciplined in that because it's a trap because if I go too much, then you forget. So you've got to keep a bit of that discipline that my thing. So that's from a life point of view. I'm starting to see that more and more now. You, you're free, but you're not free in a lot of ways too, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I get it. There are so many traps and they're all distractions. And because, like you said, there's just so many different opportunities. Uh, I don't think I've looked at it that way specifically through that lens, but, yeah, it's it's we can fall into all these different things that will take us away from what we should be doing and having that discipline. And like uh, people talk about the, their word for the year, and I know it's, it can sometimes be a bit cliche and throw away, throw away lines, but to me, like, I know how important they are. My, my word when I, that I chose at the start of this year was exactly that word, discipline. It's to making sure I was following through on the things that I needed to follow through on. Do I get that right 100% of the time? Of course not. But mm-hmm. having that, that desire to actually make that happen, it just makes all the difference for right. just progress in all areas of life, right? No, it does. It, it's really cliche, but, yeah, you, I, yeah, just little things like I just journaling and all that, like I've really started this year. Um, yeah, I've been probably off track last two weeks here and there, but it, it makes a big difference. Um, and having some routine, people will think, oh, routine's boring, but it allows you to ultimately be free and have that time. So, yeah, now I'm, yeah, that's what I've really learned as a person. Um, when my parents came here to give us an opportunity, um, which just opened everything up, you can have anything you want, but now it's trying to bra- bring it back in now a bit. Yeah, spot on. <laughs> You, you, you touched on something there, like it, it can fe- seem a little bit boring and then maybe the structure are like restrictive, but no, actually to me it gives you more space within the structure to go and be completely spontaneous and be more creative without getting off track, without ending up down rabbit holes that take you places that aren't beneficial anyway. So I think I think what you said there is perfect. What, what really struck me when you were talking about then, you were talking about travel and we haven't had the opportunity – most people to go international much in the last few years. Have you have you been back to Afghanistan or do you have a desire to go back there? Is there anything calling you? <laughs> you must be reading my mind this week because um, it's only this week. I Honestly, though, this is it's a bit freaky because it was this week that I was thinking about it. Like I'm just – what was it? I was on the weekend. I was feeling a bit low, and I was just watching some. There's a there's a guy there that actually um, how do I say it? Who's who? Who could use an Australia that he's similar to? He's like you know on the footy show you got the street talkers, bonos, and all those kind of guys. Yeah. So there's a, but he's not a comedian version. He just sort of walks around um, and just interviews people on the street. Very famous. He's got a lot of subscribers, and he will show a lot of people in Europe or. Um, you know, countries like Germany where there's a lot of Afghans and, and America and the and Australia, what life is like over there. And I watched that a lot just to sort of connect a bit. And I was just like, oh, man, I would love to go. I would love to go. But it's, oh, it's, I don't have family there now and not having family there, that's extremely dangerous. Yeah, I, I would love if I, if I could, I'd jump on a plane tomorrow and, and check out because I haven't been back. And oh, actually, it feels like I've never been there. So yeah, right. Very dangerous. Yeah, there must be ways though. 
because you see those guys similar to what you talked about who go travel around the world and i remember seeing uh, a video of a guy who's basically tried to go through all the different countries and he was traveling through mm-hmm. iran at a time where we were getting told that like it was scary and it was unsafe and he's like once you get past the city like the people invite you in like a like an old family member and mm-hmm. it's actually not what what I expected it at all. So I imagine Afghanistan is going to be similar in so many ways. I mean, I'm only guessing, but I mean, I imagine like what what is happening in one area doesn't rep- represent the whole country. So I'm no, sure I mean, yeah, it, it'll take some time. Like it's, it's, it's just going to take some time to get there um, because, again, they're in that bit of that change phase now where you know, different governments and all that and because it was only like a year ago where people were just scrambling to the airports and it's uh it's still it's not a war zone at the moment or it's not a war zone or anything like that but it like i'd love to go maybe in a bit more time and then i think the other part of it is having kids now you know having two kids that plays in the back of your mind that you want to come back in one piece and and for your kids to so how do you overcome that element of it too right and Try to go to with that then on the back of your mind always. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at it like this. is like it's a risk walking walking out the front door. It's a risk, you know, yeah. getting in the car. It's like um, it's like when people go, oh, I don't want to go in the ocean because of sharks. It's like mm-hmm. statistically you're far more likely to have a car accident and have a, a serious injury or die than, than anything else like that. So, I mean, it's okay. just like anything, right? You weigh up, you weigh up the risks and, and then you make an informed decision. Um, to me, as a, as a parent, that's – teaching them about, you know, educated risk-taking, not not just playing it safe all the time. So that's but to me that's what you're doing with your business as well, right? You're giving them so many skills from just what they're observing more than anything else. Yeah, no, you're right. And um, it, 100%. And that's the thing as parents too, um, you know, like you've got to get to that stage where, yeah, like, understanding to let go of them sometimes and go right because they're still very young they're like two and four and also one and three and you know then that puppy stage you know? yeah so no you're right on that one yeah yeah cool so if you look at the future from a business perspective from a, a life perspective but also from that bigger picture perspective for the country what what do you see as a change that that you can help make that's going to bring even more of that sense of community and family into where we live here in Australia? Yeah, well, especially being in the community between what Hornsby, Normanhurst, sort of Taramara, Wurrungaway and all that, I suppose the Karingai district in the last 10 years, um, um, that's an area where I've really started to understand a lot of the culture, the customs, the beliefs and the norms of the people. And I think would really like to develop more leaders in that area that, you know, followed what we did and passed the baton on so then I can start to again go empower other areas. Um, you know, it's a very, it's a beautiful area um, and, you know, there is a bit of a common trend for a lot of young people to move out, you know, and, but, yeah, they'd like, like them to stay in the area and, you know, continue to, yeah, I, I really would like to develop more leaders in the area, young leaders, especially in what we do. Um, and then we can start to go develop more and more leaders um, and duplicate ourselves everywhere. But it's an area definitely, yeah, there's, um, as I said, it's, I, I think we can do more to, um, I want this community, I want that community to be the best football community in Australia. And um, I think we can, 
as you know, being in football, it can be very challenging because you've got, you know, the Western suburbs, other areas that are very football rich cultured. But I think we're, we can do better in our area. And I think that's what I want to look back at the years and go, you know what, there's another Isan in here who just didn't just pushed it. And then there was one in this area, in that area. So yeah, that's, that's what I'd really love to do. That's the focus now, helping these young people transition, the ones that get out of school and don't know what to do. And, but we want to be there for them. I love it. And I got goosebumps all through that because you're already doing that, right? You're already having that impact. Like I look at the, the, the kids from our club in particular who have gone on to play at a representative level because of having this philosophy in place and how many more will, particularly now as a, the, the female game grows and grows, like, and, you know, like drawn to like, um, you know, our friend Brad's young fella who's, who's now playing at a rep level and, and just loves the game. He loves the game because he grew up, with with Carno in place at Normanhurst, and he's got the the skill and the competency and and all those different things. Like, yeah. So, be, to be able to expand that, and and I love that vision of making it the the best area in Australia. To me, yeah. you're well on the way to that. So, I I, uh, I honour that, Isan. That's awesome. No, thanks, mate. And uh, look, you know, you've played a massive role in that, and also seeing your journey <laughs> as yeah within your coaching. Um, you know, work and all that. That's been awesome. Um, and, you know, those things don't go unnoticed. And you know, we watch even your success and we watch it with with a way, well, wow, that's awesome. You know, it gives us also feel to go, you know, we want to strive and do better. So it's also great to see your journey too um, to progress. I appreciate that, mate. Thank you so much for coming on and having this chat with me. Uh, I love even when, you, you, you know, you've got an idea about someone and then you just hear just unbelievable stories. So thank you so much for sharing, particularly, you know, the story of, of your parents and, and the journey that you've gone on. Uh, really inspiring. So thank you, Isan. Awesome, Legend. Yeah, have a good one and thanks again. Welcome, mate. I hope Cheers. you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.